I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I'm obviously going to be here to listen rather than to uh, do anything uh, intrusive. Um, and I suspect that what we're going to have is a, a display from an essayist, loose sally of the mind, as Dr. Johnson called the essay, but a, a demonstration or an insight or a, uh, a view of a, an extraordinarily well-stocked mind. Um, Browning called it picker-up of learning's crumbs. A picker-up of learning's crumbs. Well, uh, <laughs> Alberto Modesto. Um, the, um, I, I, the reason I'm here is because um, uh, I wrote a book uh, called Curiosities of Literature, which was uh, a homage to Isaac Disraeli, who, uh, there's a blue plaque to him just 50 yards from where we're sitting, Isaac Disraeli, who wrote a obviously very popular 19th century, early 19th century book called exactly that, The Curiosities of Literature. Some would say his greatest production in the curiosity line was his son Benjamin, when, incidentally, shall we have a, a prime minister who can write novels uh, mm-hmm. of classic status? Um, and another prime minister like Gladstone who can write a 10,000-word essay on a novel he particularly admired. We may not admire him for it, Mrs. Humphrey Ward's Robert Elsevier, uh, in a learned journal. I think those days have gone forever. Anyway, the, um, the book itself uh, is, opens with uh, an epigraph I'll misquote from memory, uh, from Gertrude Stein, who on her deathbed is supposed to have said, what's the answer? And when there was an appropriately deathly silence, uh, went on to say, what's the question? And then went off to investigate it uh, elsewhere. Um, I'm reminded of what Wittgenstein is supposed to have said on his uh, deathbed, uh, it's been fun because it's very, very, even though in fact it is incredibly learned, um, it, it, it is a very fun book. Which I think I'm not sure Dr. Johnson would uh, would see that as a salient uh, attraction in the essay, but but I do. Now, uh, the book itself is beautifully designed, by the way. Uh, Yale have Indeed. really excelled themselves, and luckily um, the English uh, version of the book uh, is going to be. Uh, an overrun printing from uh, from Yale, but it has uh, the, the simple title 
<coughs> red on black, uh, Curiosity, with the C in Curiosity using that um, forecast exclamation mark, which is peculiar to Spanish. Um, I, I, I wonder why we don't adopt it in mm. Anglo-Saxon country, because it forecasts where the question mm -hmm. is coming from, or the exclamation is just... Uh, but anyway, in the book itself, uh, two words uh, are prominent, quest and question. I'm reminded of uh, places, of, of that wonderful kind of uh, encyclopedia of curiosity, Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, mm. but there is a difference. <coughs> Burton was very, very static. He might as well have been as rooted as a 300-year-old oak tree because he just sat in his study and pulled down books. Whereas the quality of, of, of Mangel's writing is much more like his own life, nomadic. One's reminded of that superb uh, critic, uh, Auerbach, uh, who found himself, after being displaced from Germany, found himself in, in, in Jerusalem uh, with only a, a suitcase full of, of a travelling library. Um, and produced um, Mimesis, which is one of the truly great mm, works. Yes. Um, the other person I'm reminded of when I read this, even though he's not, not referenced um, in uh, Curiosity, is Siebold. It's a book which is very like um, The Rings of Saturn, you know, sort of, uh, when, when Siebold went wandering of all places around the, around the coastline of Suffolk. And, mm -hmm. But in fact, his, his is a much more linked um, a peregrination, whereas the, the quality of, 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 of curiosity is, is, is much more, um, much more necklace-like. It, it, it's a book which is, is in, could in other circumstances be off-puttingly learned. I mean, the, the, the wanderer, the questioner, uh, who most fascinates, or is, is, is the most object of most fascination in the book of Dante, who went to places that, that no man had ever been before. Um, uh, Quixote is also, in fact, um, uh, uh, as it were, omnipresent in the book. But the book itself, in fact, is, 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 is for me, a kind of wonderfully composed fragments. It's very, very beautiful, like a kind of jewel collection. He has a wonderful eye for, um, wonderful eye for quotation. I, um, let's see if I can find it. Yeah, for instance, this one, but they're all over the place. He's got a terrific eye for it. Uh, for, you know, for the, for, for the decorative quotation, not the decorative, the, the kind of resonant quotation. Yeah, this from page 111. The world is like the impression left by the telling of a story. How true, you think. And then you read who said it. Valmiki, Yoga Vashisti, 2, 3, 11. Well, of course, that's exactly what I read. I knew that. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to pass you over now to, to enjoy the mind, which we're very lucky to have. I thought you, you'd be asking me questions <laughs> because um, it, it's very difficult to launch into an explanation of, of the book. I, I mentioned somewhere that um, Borges and his friend Bioy Cazares uh, put together uh, a series of mock essays uh, poking fun uh, at the the different uh, modern styles in in writing and art and architecture and so on the nouveau roman and and, and also they imagined uh, a, a, a satire on on the literary critic where uh, because it's so difficult to talk about a book the ultimate criticism is to 
reproduce the book. All I, I, I would do is show you the book, the, the great cover, hoping that you will judge the book by its cover, and, uh, and, and leave it at that. But uh, maybe you want me to say more. Um, <clears throat> uh, well, I, I wrote the book because I realized that for... As long as I can remember, I've, I've been asking questions and uh, finding questions in, in literature. That's, that's one of the things that fascinate me about the literature that I like, that uh, dogma gives you answers and closes the door, but, but literature uh, consists of questions. And um, so... I thought that I could put together a book choosing some of those questions and starting with um, an episode in my life that would illustrate where the question comes from, in, in my case, being careful not to uh, uh, turn it into just Gossip. I had a, an editor friend in Canada who gave me good advice. She said, when you are writing, imagine that you have a, a little reader perched on your shoulder who is asking, well, why are you telling me this, me, me who's not your mother? <laughs> um, so I, <laughs> I have avoided things that would interest my mother, but not other readers. But then from there, I go from the ridiculous to the sublime. I, I find examples in Dante of those questions. And I chose Dante. Uh, I could have chosen other uh, great books that have accompanied me throughout my life. But Dante, I came to Dante late, or Dante came to me late, I started reading Dante about 10 years ago. I, I had tried him before, but it didn't work. I think books are very patient. They, they wait for us till we are ready for them. And, um, and I wasn't ready for Dante before. But then when I read him for the first time, I discovered uh, something, oh, shall I say this in the presence of John Sutherland, um, more than Shakespeare, more, more than um, Sophocles, more than Cervantes, Northrop Fry defined a classic as a work whose circumference is always greater than that of the best of its readers. And these works are that, but Dante is even more. <laughs> the circumference of, of the Commedia is greater, I think, than that of King Lear or Don Quixote. At least for me, I hesitate to use superlatives like this, but uh, I, I, I will. I think it's the greatest work ever written in the histories of literature. So of course, the questions were in Dante, and I, I, I use the episodes in Dante to go on to examples in, in our world, uh, whether it's in, during the French Revolution or 
more, more recently, the problems of ecology that were started to be discussed by Rachel Carson, for instance, or, or the use of weapons and the atomic bomb, um, and so on. But, uh, one of the things I've... I would like to ask you about is, um, and I'm sure, in fact, um, everyone in the audience will will be up with this subject. Is the the prosody of Inca poets? Yes. Which uh, you you spent several pages on that. <laughs> could, you, could you perhaps? Uh, would you perhaps? Well, I I, I I had the advantage of um, going to high school in Argentina, and, and it was a very good high school. And uh, some genius in the Ministry of Education, because they exist from time to time or from millennium to millennium, <laughs> there's one, um, and had decided that the, the courses, uh, the high school courses, would be taught uh, not by ordinary high school teachers, but by university professors, enormously qualified who were interested in just one thing, like uh, in botany, the monocotyledonians. I know lots about the monocotyledonians because we studied them for about four years. And, and, but what happened was that when you had these magnificent professors who were uh, teaching you just in, in literature, for instance, just one book, you touched on everything. If you studied Quixote for a, a full year, you studied the, the, the history of the novel, you studied the influence of Quixote on Dostoevsky, you studied uh, the origins of the Spanish language and so on. And so in those origins in the, or, or the people writing at the time of Cervantes was someone called Inca Garcilaso de la Vega. Now, Garcilaso de la Vega uh, was the son of an Inca princess and uh, a, a Spanish nobleman. And so he had the advantage of the culture of his mother. And then in Spain, with his father's family and the tutors that his father uh, gave him, he became one of the great writers of the Golden Age. And his most important book is a history of the Inca people. And it, it goes by the title of Comentarios Reales. And reales in Spanish means true, the sense of real, and, and royal. So they are the royal commentaries, meaning that they are the story of the Incas, but the story is true. And one of the things that uh, Garcilaso talks about is the Inca system of writing, which maybe you have seen. It consists of knots, uh, colored uh, strings that are knotted in certain ways and then form words. And you, you were lamenting that in English we don't have the opening question mark. There is a sign, a punctuation sign that the Incas had and that I lament that we don't have in any language today, which is the point of irony. So <laughs> I suppose the equivalent is the smiley face that people put on. <laughs> so um, in any case, uh, 
uh, I, I, I talk about this system of, of writing because there is a curious story attached to that, but perhaps it's too long to yeah. go into. All right. He, he wants me to sum up the book. Um, uh, in Naples, uh, there was a very curious figure, the Prince of San Severo, who was a, a, a genius in inventing all sorts. I'll, I'll, I'll read you the list, perhaps, of San Severo's I- inventions, because... He is such an extraordinary uh, uh, character. He certainly was uh, a very curious man. So uh, San Severo did many extraordinary things in the course of his 60-year life, so many that it is almost impossible to name them all. He began his career as a military historian, composing a universal dictionary of the art of war, unfortunately left unfinished at the letter O. (laughs) Um, His interest in warfare led to his experimenting with gunpowder and pyrotechnics, and in this field he discovered how to achieve several up to then unobtainable tones of green in firework displays, sea green, bright emerald, and the color of fresh grass. These discoveries in turn allowed him to invent what he called pyrotechnic theaters, in which the fireworks created successive scenes depicting temples, fountains, and intricate landscapes. The incandescent set designs inspired in the prince already a voracious reader an interest in the designing and of printing and casting type. And always ingenious, he invented a single passage method for printing colored images on copper sheets. They are so many prodigious inventions of San Severo, a water-resistant cloth, a tapestry not of woven but of superimposed threads that resembled an oil painting, the Chinese do that now, a linen that would not wrinkle, a paper made of vegetable silk ideal for drawing and writing, a method for cleaning copper that did not require burnishing and left no scratches, a technique for producing brass sheets thinner than any others produced until then, a procedure for making translucent porcelain and the slimmest possible crystal, a system for coloring glass without having to heat it, indelible pastel crayons that required no fixing, an artificial wax and oleohydric colors, and so on and so on and so on. Now, one of the there were so many inventions that people began to suspect that San Severo was assisted in his inventions by the devil himself. It was rumored that he had brewed a substance akin to blood and also that he had been able to bring river crabs back to life. Why would you want to bring river crabs back to life? But anyway, that they had been burned to cinders in the hearth. It was said that like Paracelsus, he could make a rose bloom again from its ashes. Napolitans later believed that the prince had taken his own life after instructing his servants to perform a resurrection procedure, which his wife, alerted to the sacrilege, had piously interrupted. The corpse had barely the time to step out of its coffin before it uttered a hideous shriek and crumbled to mortal dust. I wondered if Poe 
If I had two functioning hands, I would applaud them. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I, I wonder if, if Poe read this and, and then wrote yeah. the, the facts in the case of Monsieur Valdemar, where the story... That's the, that's the man who gets hypnotized and goes across, but then yes. sees the horrible and things and dissolves into pus. It, yes, in this putrid mess. It's one of the, the, the most disgusting descriptions in literature at the end of the story. <laughs> you, you know, can, can I just go back to something you, yes. you said, um, apropos of the, the, the Spanish um, upside-down question mark? You said, yes. we don't have it. But how many first languages do you have? And a George Steiner... Test. What language do you dream in? Depends where I am. Um, my, my first languages were English and German. I, English with a German accent, accent uh, German with a Czech accent, because they were taught by a, a German-speaking Czech nanny, with whom I lived the first seven, eight years of my life. So when we returned to Argentina, I learned Spanish, and then I learned French in school, and then Italian when I lived in Italy, and so on. And you talk at one point of being in Israel, is that right? Yes, but I didn't learn a single word of Hebrew there because my father was the Argentinian ambassador to Israel, and um, Argentina's official religion is Roman Catholic. So um, I knew all about the Roman Catholic holidays and I could recite the Our Father and all that, but I, I didn't even know that my family was Jewish until we returned. So um, opportunity more. I have been Canadian for quite a while. I, I, I don't believe in imposed nationalities. I don't think why, if we happen to be born somewhere, my, your mother dropped you somewhere. Uh, you acquire the nationality of the place she dropped you in. Um, I, I don't believe in arranged marriages, so <laughs> I, um, I wanted to choose, and, and I chose Canadian, and, and that's, that's how, if I have to define myself, that's how I would define Traveling, myself. Traveling, crossing borders comes up quite a lot in, in the book. There's, a, there's yes. a very nice little um, personal <clears throat> sort of uh, uh, vignettes of, um, of Alberta. I, I mean, I, I, I would ask... Respectfully, if he he would read, I, I look into his eyes, um, <laughs> the eyes in his head, and he's very funny about um, about the colour of his eyes. But I wonder if I could prevail on him to read a passage which I recall is on page one two seven to one two eight, which is really beautifully uh, autobiographical. He studs these kind of different these different modes into his, into his pattern you know, very elegantly. It's not, it's not accidental. I think it makes up a total design. But, but there's a huge variety within, within this book, um, as you'd expect from a book called Curiosity, I suppose. Anyway, you, you find it good. It, it, it's the beginning of the chapter um, entitled, Who Am I? I have in front of me a photo taken sometime in the early 60s it shows an adolescent boy lying on his belly on the grass, looking up from a pad of paper on which he has been drawing or writing. In his right hand is a pencil or a pen. He is wearing a sort of cap and hiking boots and tied around his waist as a sweater. He is lying in the shade of a brick wall next to what seem like stumpy apple trees. A short-legged dog is close behind him, 
reminiscent of the dogs that lie on stone tombs at the feet of dead crusaders. I am that boy, but I don't recognize myself in the picture. I know it's me, but that is not my face. The photo was taken half a century ago somewhere in Patagonia during a camping holiday. When I look into the mirror today, I see a tired, puffed-up face circled by gray hair and a jovial white beard. I see a small eyes lined with wrinkles and framed by narrow glasses. These eyes are olive brown with a few orange flecks. Once when I tried to cross into England with a passport that stated that my, the color of my eyes were green, the immigration officer, staring me in the face, told me I should change that to blue, or next time I would not be allowed in. <laughs> I know that sometimes my eyes look gray. Maybe their color changes from moment to moment, like those of Madame Bovary, but I'm not sure if that change of color, as in her case, has a meaning. Nevertheless, the face in the mirror is me. It has to be me, but it is not my face. Others recognize me and my features. I don't when inadvertently I catch sight of myself reflected in a shop window. I wonder who that fat elderly man is walking by my side. I have a vague fear that if I truly saw myself one day on the street, I wouldn't know myself. I'm convinced that I would not be able to pick myself out in a police lineup, <laughs> nor would I easily um, identify myself in a group portrait. I'm not sure whether this is because my features age too rapidly and too drastically, or because my own self is less grounded in my memory than the printed words I've learned by heart. This thought is not completely unpleasant. It is also somehow comforting. To be myself, to be so utterly and absolutely myself that no particular circumstance or point of view can impeach the recognition, grants me a happy sense of freedom from the obligation of following the conditions of being who I am. And then I, I go on to Dante. Um, I, uh, the, the chapter has um, a quote from a poem I like. It's by James Reeves. The poem is called Things to Come. The shadow of a fat man in the moonlight precedes me on the road down which I go. And should I turn and run, he would pursue me. This is the man whom I must get to know. That's lovely, isn't it? But the, one of the things that struck me in the, the kind of long kind of relationship you have with, with Dante in this book is you say Dante wrote his great poems in different places. That is so extraordinary because the whole Commedia was written in exile. Dante, in his 30s, is sent from Florence on a mission to Rome to a pope he doesn't like. And then when he's there, in Florence, the politics change and he is exiled. Well, 
he is also condemned to death if he returns and loses everything. And so he cannot go back to his beloved Florence and the beloved Florence uh, that has betrayed him runs throughout the Commedia. But uh, when writers, writer friends and myself complain about not being able to write because the weather is inclement or it's too hot or uh, they're not quite feeling like it or the kids are making noise. or Think about Dante writing the Commedia without his books, without his notes, without his friends, being a guest in someone else's house. Dante says climbing up and down stairs that are alien and eating bread with salt. Uh, Because, as you know, if you've been to Florence, the Florentine bread is cooked without salt. It's baked without salt. So the the bread with salt was very foreign to him. But um, it's miraculous. I I don't know how it's possible. Brodsky uh, says that, of course, he had to have drafts, and every poet has uh, different drafts of the poem that he corrects, and so on. So, all this must have happened, but it's happening while he's traveling, scribbling on on the piece of paper at the side of a, a dining table that is. Uh, full of people that he doesn't know and in very uncomfortable situations. I, I, I don't know how that is possible, but if, if there's proof of what the human spirit can do, I think the Commedia is that proof. You have a very poignant description of Brodsky, hmm. who's obviously a, a writer whom you admire greatly. Yes, uh, yes. In... in um, well, um, there, there is a, a chapter. I don't know which, which one. I, I, I'll find it in. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Indexes are great. That's a good index, brother, right? I speak as the former president of the Index of Society. Ah, the, yes, I was very, very lucky. Yale has a, a, a wonderful index. Well, the book is so disparate that it does need an index. Even Absolutely. You are looking. <laughs> well, I, I reading the book. I certainly like don't remember it. The question is, how do we question? In my library, at the exact height of my arm's reach, are the works of Brodsky. In the early 60s, and, and this is quite interesting, I don't know if, 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 if you share this, the, if you put your books in alphabetical order, whatever order you choose, the books that 
are at your arm's reach are the ones that you use much more than the ones that you have to throw yourself on the floor to get or climb a ladder to get. And what does it, this say about the sources of our inspiration? In any case, Brodsky is at, at arm's reach. In the early 60s, Brodsky, accused of some imaginary plot by the KGB, was condemned twice to a psychiatric asylum and later to internal exile in a prison camp in the north of Russia, where he was made to work on a state farm in temperatures of below 30 degrees Celsius. In spite of the terrible conditions and thanks to a benevolent supervisor, he was allowed to send and receive letters and also to write, he'd later say, a fair amount of poetry. Friends sent him books and four poets became essential for him because of what he called their uniqueness of soul. Robert Frost, Marina Tsetaeva, Konstantin Kavafi, and W.H. Auden. Auden had once said that Frost's favorite image was that of an abandoned house fallen into ruin. In a conversation with Brodsky, the critic Solomon Volkov reminded him that whereas in European poetry a ruin is usually associated with war or pillaged nature, in Frost it became a metaphor for courage and an image of man's hopeless struggle for survival. Without reducing the image to an explanation, Brodsky agreed with Volkov's reading, but he preferred this knowledge to lie dormant, not immediately apparent, because Brodsky distrusted any account of the events surrounding the creative act. The text should be allowed to speak alone in an amorous entanglement with the reader. And then um, in, in the chapter I uh, talk about, um, in order to, to see how we can question, the example I use, starting with Dante, goes on to the Talmud and the printing of the Talmud in Venice, which was Brodsky's city, and what it meant to have a system of questioning thought. The Talmud can be described as a series of questions on the sacred text. Everyone will have questions for Alberto, so perhaps uh, <coughs> can I open it to the, the floor and um, please um, interrogate him. Questions is what it's about, please. Good evening. Um, Alberto, I wanted to thank you for convincing me that uh, Alice in Wonderland is a great work, which I hadn't really thought about. I'm surprised that I hadn't. Well, but, uh, partly for the reasons that you mentioned, uh, that it was now you a, a, a miraculous work. Um, but my question is that the curiosity you explore is, in some sense, unstructured curiosity. And there's another form, the organized curiosity of the scientific revolution. And I appreciate that one of, as I take it, one of the points in your book is a defense of the humanities in a, in a very inhuman time. But... Um, the value of the sciences is the organization of curiosity and the, the power for good and evil that comes with it. And I wonder if you could comment on that. Um, I hope that my book doesn't give the impression that I separate the sciences from the humanities. This is a, a horrible invention of the 19th century 
for Dante, there was no difference. It was all in the realm of, of human knowledge and the realm of questioning. So uh, music, astronomy, uh, mathematics, poetry were all in his realm and in the, the human realm. A person who was curious did not say, I will not go there because that is scientific. Um, Galileo, his first published text, is a, a scientific geological exploration of the uh, Dante's Inferno. Because Dante gives such precise descriptions that Galileo felt that he could measure it and gives, gives us formulas to follow the cartography of, of Dante's hell. And also, uh, there, there, there are so many places that we see that uh, the pure sciences and the humanities share not only the same concerns, but the same problems. When the dean of Cambridge University and Oxford University, I, I don't know if there's just one dean or, anyway, representatives met with um, a certain David Cameron, he told them that the budgets would be cut in the areas of the humanities and the areas of pure sciences because these were pursuits without purpose. So they, they share this, this, this problem. The, apparently the, the Dean of Oxford commented that electricity was not discovered in order to make light bulbs, but um, Cameron apparently did not understand that. Can, can I... Can I ask you a question? Because I, I think you'd be much better informed on it than, than, than I am. I, I broke my wrist on April Fool's Day walking in the Santa Monica Mountains coming down by the ominously named Skull Rock and I was with a, a very knowledgeable comparatist. I'm not a comparatist, Manguel is. You know, it's one of the poverties of the English higher education system, as you well know, that you, you have field specialism. The field is getting smaller. But anyway, this friend was talking to me about something which... It actually stuck in my mind. You're talking about Proust um, and involuntary memory in, obviously, the Madeleine, everyone knows that, but the Paving Stone as well. And these are memories which take control of you. Let's say you don't remember them, and they're not associative in the Lockean way. I mean, you don't think of duck and green peas. Yes. Um, but they, they sort of come back at you. And you know, for, for Proust, it's, uh, it's joy. For me, it's horror as you get older. These bloody <laughs> memories keep coming back to me, and I have no control. Well, is, is there any kind of any kind of psychological explanation for them? Uh, I should hesitate because I'm not a brain scientist, but I have been reading about this uh, in some detail, and there is a link because um, p memory is very complicated, but um, there are memories uh, which only are activated when the limbic, well, the limbic system, which underlies the cortex, is in play, and these emotional memories to do with fear, for example, and horror, and also very ele elemental experiences, very elemental emotional experiences are in what you might call the lower brain or the mammalian brain, the emotional brain, which is not the same as the, the cortex, but I'm, you know, it's a very complex topic. But yes, there is something in what you say. And, and these are the memories that grab hold of you? Yes, go ahead. Every time you, you read a book, 
you read your previous reading and so it becomes a palimpsest. Is that what happens to our memory? Hmm. Now, I was going to say that the, the, the trigger uh, for the Commedia Dante tell us, tells us is his memory of uh, his vision of Beatrice when he's nine and she's six and uh, he sees this little girl and falls in love with her forever and then afterwards she marries and that afterwards she dies and then he turns her into these, this, this cold figure that berates him and humiliates him when he arrives in paradise. Um, but, uh, but maybe it's one of these memories that he, he cannot control. It's there and, and, and dictates his need to write the poem. Borges has a, a, a wonderful observation about this. He says... Um, Surely his love for Beatrice and, or, or his memory of his encounter with Beatrice uh, makes him write the poem. But then, because he is a poet, he falls under the laws of poetry. And if he has written the poem to be with the woman that he loved and with whom he couldn't be and imagine that scene, the rules of the poem, the rules of the story, make it so that when he finally arrives in the last heaven, she disappears. And, and he says, and she, where is she? And this old Saint Bernard is there who prays to the Virgin that Dante will be accorded the final vision. But Borges says, perhaps he didn't want the final vision. He wanted her. And Dante says it in, in, in the poem. <laughs> but there's so many uh, moments. I just want to, to talk to you a little bit about uh, my fascination with Dante because he, he writes his poem, of course, within the structure of the Christian dogma and it's a very strict structure but within that he finds such immense freedom Um, I'll give you one instance when Virgil and Dante arrive finally after crossing hell climbing down the hairy body of Lucifer and then up his legs because the uh, Lucifer is stuck in the middle of the earth. So once you get to his middle, then it's a climb towards the, uh, uh, in the southern hemisphere, towards Mount Purgatory. So they arrive, they arrive on the beach of Purgatory, and uh, they meet Cato, Cato the censor, who is the, the guardian of, of Purgatory, and uh, Cato tells them what ritual they have to follow in order to uh, be allowed to climb purgatory. And the first ship of souls arrives, and it's a ship made of an angel. The, the, the wings brush the water. And um, according to Christian dogma, once you arrive in purgatory, you are saved. Uh, no soul that isn't saved can arrive in purgatory. So once you get there... 
the thing is done, the only thing you have to do is, sometimes for centuries, purge your sin, and then you ascend to heaven. Good. Um, the souls descend, and Dante sees among the, the, amongst the souls uh, his friend, Casella, an old friend from Florence with whom they partied in Florence, and Casella was a wonderful musician, and Dante wrote poems that Casella set to music, and, and Dante is overcome by this, this uh, encounter, and so tries to embrace his friend, but his friend is, of course, a, a, a shade. And so Dante, who is flesh and blood, tries to embrace him, and he embraces the air. But nevertheless, Dante says, Cassel, I'm so f- glad to see you. Won't you sing for me? And uh, there we are on the beach of Purgatory with the other souls. They haven't yet found the way up the mountain. And Casella starts to sing, and he sings words that Dante wrote, because Dante quotes himself many times in, in the Commedia. And they're all enchanted. They surround Casella in admiration, and even Virgil is, is overcome by the beauty of the song. And Cato comes running and says, what are you doing? You, you, you're here to purge your soul. You have been saved. Why are you not rushing up the mountain? Why are you here listening to a song? And so the other souls are all ashamed, and Virgil is, is mortified because he should have been more vigilant. But so they, they disperse like doves, Dante says. But what is Dante telling us that even in the most important moments of our life. If you are a believer, there's nothing more important than the salvation of your soul. And so the moment that your soul is saved and you should start to purge, to get up to heaven, you stop to listen to a song. Because Dante believed, I think, that whatever we do in whatever circumstances we are, Art is of the essence, and poetry is important, and, and, and music is important, more important than the salvation of our soul. And I find it so moving that uh, that tiny moment appears within the strict Catholic dogma. From where I'm looking, uh, your book looks really sinister, sort of black and red, um, and I wonder... Um, it's a Stendhal cover. <laughs> um, I, I seem to remember booking the tickets. It's saying something about the dark side of curiosity. Um, I don't know if that's one of your... Something mm. you sort of think about. I'm thinking of, um, I suppose, Poe, Edgar Allan Poe, and maybe that, the sort of madness of hyper-consciousness or um, notes from the underground, this idea that the thinking uh, are at risk somehow. And I, w- I wonder if you want, it's, if you have anything to say about those sorts of ideas. Um, uh, I didn't come up with the phrase of the dark side of curiosity, but um, it is true that whenever we express our curiosity, whenever we start to ask questions, there will be something in society that will oppose those questions because we are 
entering with our questions unknown territories, and that always seems dangerous to society, whether it is opening Bluebeard's door or whether it is exploring, as Dante's Ulysses does, beyond the limits of the world, there is a risk, but there is also the risk of finding out something that will oppose or contradict the laws that society has set up. And so it happens with scientific research, it happens with philosophical questioning, and the opposition will come either from a, a religious body or from a political body or even from society itself, uh, uh, explorations of sexuality, for instance, is one chapter on why we divide the human race into two, uh, following Pythagoras, but uh, sexuality is much more fluid than that. And so um, that is opposed by our society because it makes us feel uncomfortable. You've got a very interesting uh, dissertation on um, female curiosity. I mean, I'm sure the fact the cat that was killed by curiosity was female. Have you gone about Pandora and Eve? Yes. I mean, is, is there, I mean, are women... And you mentioned uh, Bluebeard's wife, of yes. course. Uh, you know, the, the, the woman who, who brings, as it were, disaster <laughs> on herself by... I mean, is, is there a kind of gender sort of uh, aspect to this? Well, yeah, it is the... Uh, patriarchal view of, of women, of course, that, that construct the idea of woman as the curious uh, creature who causes trouble through her curiosity, whether it's Eve or whether it is uh, Pandora. And um, throughout the writings of the fathers of, of the church, uh, there is a, a misogyny that... Uh, is very akin to fear. We don't want women to ask questions. Which is why there's no, so few women in science, which is really scandalous, I think. Yeah, well, more, of course, now. But uh, yes, uh, absolutely, because of this arbitrary division between uh, men having uh, the power to act and women, on the contrary, are the logos, the the word. Um, Alessandro Baricco, the Italian uh, writer, has made a very interesting observation on the Iliad. He says, the fighting only stops when the women speak. And he did a wonderful version of the Iliad with uh, the, the, the monologues of the women. So he constructs the story through the moments where they're not fighting. But it's so ingrained is the idea of this difference that during the French Revolution, there's a chapter about that, when the assembly declares the rights of man, it is the rights of man, uh, male man, uh, that are declared and not the rights of women. Women were uh, grouped with madmen, children, and uh, men in the employment of others. You have that grisly description of the punishment of women, don't you? The oh, public, uh, t 
terrible. The, the women who wanted to have a voice in the assembly were uh, beaten in the street, had their head chopped off in some cases. But in one terrible case, she's put in a, a, a lunatic asylum just to silence the voice of women who were demanding equal rights. And there is a wonderful character that I discovered. I mean, you, perhaps you know of her, but I had not heard of her. Olympe de Gouges, who was the illegitimate daughter of a French aristocrat, a very bad poet, uh, who had written a book called Divine Verses. And Voltaire said they were divine because no human could read it. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, uh, so he, um, the father, married her off to a baker. And when when her husband died, she didn't take on the title of widow, uh, but she called herself Olympe de Gouges after her mother and taught herself to read and write because she wanted to write plays. And she did so, and she wrote plays that were uh, performed by the Comédie Française, and they were so successful that she uh, challenged Beaumarchais, the author of The Marriage of Figaro, to a duel, and he didn't accept. So Olympe de Gouges decides when The Rights of Man are published to write the rights of women. And it is a wonderful document. She, she did lots of other things. She um, was an abolitionist fighting against slavery. She set up uh, institutions for single mothers. She fought for the rights of divorced women to retain some rights and so on. And what happens to her? She gets her head chopped off, of course. And a woman doesn't become a legal person in France until 1960-something. <laughs> so. I think, could we have a, a, another last rousing question? Uh, thank you very much. I mean, you said in the beginning, I mean, about cover of the book and curiosity, in my experience, started everything from the cover of the book. Yes, and I remember many times as, for me too. <laughs> as a kid in Birmingham where I grew up, going through a bookshop, just walking through to get to the other end of the city centre. My father took... And that's my first experience of my introduction to books. And as a young boy um, growing up in Birmingham, and sometimes my grandfather taking me to these local libraries, just throwing, throwing me in these bookshelves, just go and pick something. And it kind of made me as a person and I travelled around the world. I discovered everything, almost everything through the books. And yet, in my city... I grew up amongst a community which nobody ever read a book. And I'm talking about, I'm slightly going to generalise here, white working class kids. I grew up and none of them ever read a book. Yes. And what's happening now in Birmingham is almost a lot of local libraries are closing down. We've uh, spent almost about £200 million on the new library and that they've cut back on the hours... So if there ever was a revival amongst those communities, it seems for those young people, there seems more distance, those curiosities seems. I, I think that 
uh, we're going through um, an especially difficult period. Um, reading the the intellectual act in itself never was a priority of any society. Um, readers have always been the minority, but. I think that now, in, in our consumer society, the intellectual act has no prestige whatsoever. Um, and if we consider the question of, of reading and, and why so many people don't read, but uh, what I mean is read in, in depth, not just read superficial texts that don't change your life. Why that is, I, I think that the answer is in, uh, lies in, in the values that we have established for that consumer society. If you have a consumer society, the values are the quick and easy. Uh, you won't sell a product saying that it's difficult and it will take time and you will have to go about it gradually. That won't sell anything. But reading consists of that. You, uh, a, a text demands your effort. And I don't know when the notion of difficulty beca became a negative notion. Um, at least when, when I was a child, I don't mean that everybody read. Uh, this is false nostalgia. We were perhaps two or three in, in my class who liked reading. But um, we love difficult words. I remember finding them and not necessarily looking them up in the dictionary, but repeating them as they, if they were magic incantations. Um, and... Why has that disappeared, that, that notion of enjoying the difficulty? Alberto, I know that, uh, in a sense, your books are all autobiographical. I haven't read this yet. I'm looking forward to it. But I read somewhere that this is the most autobiographical of your books. Is that, is that true? Or? Um, oh, you haven't thought about it in you, that sense? <laughs> you will have to decide. It, it, it is true that as John Sutherland has said, I, I appear in every chapter uh, that was a deliberate choice. But maybe this comes from something that happened when I, I wrote uh, A History of Reading. When I, I wrote A History of Reading, I wrote it without the first person singular appearing in the book. And I gave it to a friend to read, the, the philosopher, Canadian philosopher Stan Persky, and he sent it back and he said, well, Alberto, you've told me all these anecdotes about meeting Borges and going to Carthage and collecting books in a certain way and so on. They, they um, would illuminate the, uh, the essay for the reader because they would give the reader a, a precise example so that the reader can find the, those examples in his or her own life. And so I did that, and it seemed to work, and so I have done it a number of times, but perhaps especially in, in curiosity.
Paul. Alberto is all yours. Can we sort of uh, thank you? <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>